here in 2 Samuel chapter 20. There are two people in this chapter who are able to look ahead and see what is going to happen in the future. Not that it's huge and prophetic, it's just they can see, oh my goodness, this is going to not be good. And they see what has to happen right now. And then they do it. Because you know what? If we don't prepare for what's going to happen, we're going to be dead. All right? Now, there's others in this chapter who are unaware, who don't get what's going on. And they become fruitless. They get killed without knowing what hit them. So this chapter is a wake-up call to be wise and look ahead, see what's coming, and deal with it right now. Are you interested? All right. I'm going to read here in 2 Samuel chapter 20. It says, And there happened to be a rebel whose name was Sheba the son of Bichri, a Benjamite. And he blew a trumpet and said, We have no share in David, nor do we have inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So every man of Israel deserted David and followed Sheba the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah from the Jordan as far as Jerusalem remained loyal to their king. All right. Right at this point, this big civil war in Israel is over. Absalom, who became king in place of David, is dead. The men of Israel, the men of Judah, are all coming back together again, and it looks like we're going to recover from a civil war. We're going to create unity. We're going to build the nation back together. And then we've got this little problem at the end of chapter 19 that the men of Judah actually kind of want to look good, and so they're kind of harsh to their brethren. And it's not necessary. It's not called for. And what happens is, there's this worthless fellow named Sheba, and he takes opportunity here, in the middle of all this harshness, to lead Israel astray. Now it says here, he is a worthless fellow. Rebel. But you look in the margin, it says, son of Belial. Now that means he's a jerk. He's not a good guy. He's got nothing worthy to contribute to Israel. He only sees a chance to do something for himself and make himself out to be somebody. Draw people to follow him. Why should anybody follow him? And he says, because I'm not David. 
That's his big selling point. Let's throw David down the well. Let's get rid of him. No relationship with him. Everybody go home and forget David. Now, what's at stake here is the unity of God's people under God's anointed king. Like, what is Israel? Is it just another country? Where, you know, it's, it's got its good points, it's got its bad points, it's kind of cool. We got some history and junk. But it's like, you know, you could live somewhere else and it would be about as good or about as bad. You know what I mean? Pluses and minuses. Is that what Israel is? You know, this nation alone is created by God to be his people. And he is going to bless the whole world through this people. There's a reason that they exist. There's a purpose why they exist. And you know, it's reflected in the worship of God at Jerusalem. That's where the Ark of the Covenant is, the testimony of God That's where the Lord put his name forever. And the kingdom is important because the people asked God for a king, and he gave them one. So they're not supposed to say, I'm the king. Every man to his own tent. We don't want to play anymore. This king has a covenant with God to rule his people forever. So what if Israel ignores all this? What if they say, I don't want a kingdom. I don't want to be God's people. I just want to sit under my fig tree and strum my harp. And just forget all this junk. What happens? Well, then they become like every other nation on earth who doesn't worship God, doesn't know why they exist, just doing their own thing, they'll become idolaters and worship false gods that cannot save them. Do not listen to them when they are in need and cry out. They're going to bring on themselves something even worse, and that is the curse for disobeying the covenant. So they're going to disintegrate. So this isn't a, an option that you can sort of say, oh, I'll do it, or maybe, ah, I don't want to play. This is who they are as a people. Well, can you believe that Sheba is successful, that some people go, huh, He's not David. I'll vote for that. Like, what are people thinking? So they throw out David and the kingdom and the covenant and everything. You know, isn't it a tragedy when God's people have such a light grasp on who they are and who God is that they will just throw it out for any reason whatsoever? 
just throw it away and don't think about consequences. That's what's going on here. Now you notice that Judah sticks to David. They follow the king, but this is kind of hard too because they started this with their harsh attitude. They weren't so much for David as they were kind of out for themselves and defend themselves and look good. And they build themselves up at the cost of unity. So you ask, does the king need this kind of support? And it's also sad when God's people don't understand how important it is to love one another like Jesus commanded. And you have to ask, does your Christianity draw people to Jesus or does it push them away? We draw people to Jesus with cords of loving kindness. That's why we are to love one another. Well, we have a funny verse here in verse 3. Look at this. Now David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten women, his concubines whom he had left to keep the house, and he put them in seclusion and supported them, but did not go into them. So they were shut up to the day of their death, living in widowhood. This is kind of awkward, isn't it? You know, David left these ten concubines to keep the house when he fled. And this was part of the judgment of God when David sinned against Bathsheba and against her husband, that someone would take his wives and lie with them right in the sight of Israel in broad daylight. And that's what Absalom did with these ten concubines. Now, Absalom did this to rally his followers and burn his bridges with David and firm everyone up in their rebellion against the king because Absalom was taking the kingdom and he was taking David's wives. The kingdom is mine. His wives are mine. This is all mine. That's what the statement meant. And what's awkward is the concubines. That is, they made a choice for a moment and it affected them for the rest of their lives. And we don't know how their experience was. Did they have any choice to resist Absalom? Did they put up a fight? We don't know. Maybe they liked Absalom better. You know, he was a handsome guy. The most handsome guy in Israel. He had hair. Probably was rippling with muscles. An eight-pack or maybe a 12-pack here. Maybe they thought, hey, David's, David's gone. Is he coming back? I don't know. 
Maybe they did it because everybody else did it. They didn't want to be the odd person out. Who knows what they were thinking? But you know, now Absalom is dead. And David is back. And they got to deal with David. And what David does is acknowledge them as widows of Absalom. He does not take them back. He can't. Because now they've passed to Absalom. And so he maintains their support to the end of their lives. But he doesn't treat them as his slightly used wives. They're widows of Absalom. Now, what would have happened, do you think? Had these women thought, no, 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 this is temporary. David is coming back. How do I want to be when he comes back? I'm his wife now. Am I going to stay his wife? Then they would have said, we can't do what Absalom wants. So get away from me, man. You know, for whatever reason, and we don't know what it was, they said, okay, we're going to do this thing. We're going to sleep with Absalom in broad daylight. And after moments of pleasure, they were barren for the rest of their lives. So, you know, think about this for a second. It's good to remember that Jesus is coming back. That helps you to make good decisions now. So we think about the stuff we want to do, and we say, Lord, is this something that you're in? Or is it just something I'm going to be embarrassed about when you come back? Because I would prefer him to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Now, we start a big chunk here in verse 4. And the king said to Amazah, Assemble the men of Judah for me within three days and be present here yourself. So Amazah went to assemble the men of Judah. But he delayed longer than the set time which David had appointed him. And David said to Abishai, Now Sheba the son of Bichri will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he find for himself fortified cities and escape us. So Joab's men, with the Cherethites, the Pelethites, and all the mighty men, went out after him. And they went out of Jerusalem to pursue Sheba the son of Bichri. When they were at the large stone, which is in Gibeon, Amazah came before them. Now Joab was dressed in battle armor. On it was a belt with a sword fastened in its sheath at his hips. And as he was going forward, it fell out. Then Joab said to Amazah, Are you in health, my brother? And Joab took Amazah by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amazah did not notice the sword that was in Joab's hand. And he struck him with it in the stomach, and his entrails poured out on the ground, and he did not strike him again. Thus he died. Then Joab and Abishai pursued Sheba the son of Bichri. 
Meanwhile, one of Joab's men stood near Amaziah and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, follow Joab. But Amaziah wallowed in his blood in the middle of the highway. And when the man saw that all the people stood still, he moved Amaziah from the highway to the field and threw a garment over him. When he saw that everyone who came upon him halted. When he was removed from the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba the son of Bichri. All right. Check this out. Amaza is a guy who does not have understanding. He's clueless. I don't understand him, but let's try. Amaza is David's nephew, just like Joab, just like Abishai, but a different sister of David, and that is Abigail. David made him commander of the army in the place of Joab after the Civil War. And I think David was a little bit sore at Joab. I think David wants to move on without Joab. You notice when he sends his own soldiers out, he doesn't say Joab. He says to Abishai, his other nephew, take the men and go. But um, David tells Amazah, get the army ready in three days and meet me here. And then three days later, no Amazah, no army, now, this is urgent, and Amazah doesn't get it. He had his orders. Get the army ready. Be here in three days. Now, what is this guy thinking? That David's command was just a suggestion? Or does he think, well, David can ask. He can ask for the moon, but he better take what he gets. I mean, what kind of an attitude does he have? Obedience doesn't matter as long as you are sincere. There's no idea about what's important and urgent and demands his immediate obedience. Now, he might be kind of doing the best he can and kind of organizing and trying to get guys going and stuff, but in the meantime, his delay is directly helping out Sheba, the son of Bikri. It is aiding the enemy and weakening David just by being slow. Sheba's rebellion of indifference against David grows every day because Amaz's not producing. And David says, you know what? This is going to be worse than Absalom taking over. This is a bigger problem. So David tells Abishai, get going. And you notice that Abishai takes Joab's guys. David is still trying to, to do an end run around Joab. I don't like him and I don't need him, all right? And then at the large stone in Gibeon, 
Amaziah shows up and Joab kills him. This is also hard because the language here tends to show that it's Amaziah's fault because he wasn't watching. You think, really? But come on, he's Joab's cousin. Does he not know Joab? You know your relatives, don't you? You know the ones you have to kind of watch out for, right? Well, Joab is the cousin who killed Abner in the gate of Hebron. Now, you know, Hebron is a city of refuge. It's a place where a manslayer can go and nobody can touch him. That's the law of God. And that's where Joab calls Abner back. Abner killed his brother Azahel and says, hey, how's it going? Kills him right there in Hebron. That's the kind of guy Joab is. Or David has just told all the commanders of his armies, go easy on Absalom. So what does Joab do? Kills him. That's the kind of guy Joab is. So don't you think Amaziah ought to know that Joab is a guy you got to be careful with? Wouldn't you think he would have a clue? But you know, there's Joab. Oh, just dropped my sword. God, what kind of a clutch am I? Hey, come here closer. Pow! He never saw it coming. So, I don't know. I mean, it's not a good thing that he got killed, okay? And this is one thing that Joab is finally going to get killed for. Because he killed his own people in peacetime. But still, what kind of guy is Amaziah? I mean, what's he thinking? I don't know. He has no clue. Now, this might be a little radioactive detail here. But you notice that even when he's dead, Amaziah is slowing things down. Because everybody's looking at him and not going anywhere. And this guy has to actually drag him off the road and cover him with his coat. And finally, Amaziah is not holding things up anymore. Take it for what it's worth, folks. But this guy is finally out of the way, and they're finally moving and to get Sheba the son of Bikri. Now, here's an instance coming up where one woman understands what's going on and saves an entire city. Verse 14. And he went through all the tribes of Israel to Abel and Beth Meacha and all the Berites. So they were gathered together and also went after Sheba. Then they came and besieged him in Abel of Beth Meacha. 
And they cast up a siege mound against the city, and it stood by the rampart, and all the people who were with Joab battered the wall to throw it down. Then a wise woman cried out from the city, Here, here, please say to Joab, come nearby that I may speak with you. When he had come near to her, the woman said, Are you Joab? He answered, I am. Then she said to him, Hear the words of your maidservant. And he said, I'm listening. So she spoke, saying, They used to talk in former times, saying, They shall surely seek guidance at Abel, and so they would end disputes. I'm among the peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city and a mother in Israel. Why would you swallow up the inheritance of the Lord? And Joab answered and said, Far be it from me, far be it from me, that I should swallow up or destroy. That's not so. But a man from the mountains of Ephraim, Sheba the son of Bichri by name, has raised his hand against the king, against David. Deliver him only, and I'll depart from the city. So the woman said to Joab, Watch, his head's going to be thrown to you over the wall. Then the woman in her wisdom went to all the people, and they cut off the head of Sheba the son of Bichri and threw it out to Joab. Then he blew a trumpet, and they withdrew from the city, every man to his tent. So Joab returned to the king of Jerusalem. So imagine you're in this city, you got walls, and you got this army camping outside, and they build a rampart, which is they pile up a bunch of dirt about the size of your city wall so they can try to jump across. And they take a battering ram, and they're going to batter down the door. Now, you know, all this takes time, doesn't it? What do you think the people are thinking inside the city? Huh. Did you hear? We're all about to die. I mean, there's a bunch of guys outside, and they're battering down the door, and they've built this ramp, and we've watched them for two weeks. You think we're dead? I don't know. I don't think we're dead. We're not dead yet. And this is going on. And one woman grasps what's going on. She says, well, obviously somebody has to do something right now or we're all dead. And it looks like I'm the one because I don't want to die. So can you imagine, she's not thinking, I'm just a woman, what can I do in a patriarchal society? I'm elderly, I can't swing a sword, or go, you know, with Joab, I'll take you down. Man, she's good. She just pops up over the wall and says, Yoo-hoo, Joab. He goes, well, I'm right here. She goes, well, let's talk. He says, fine with me. Who knew that Joab could be so chatty? She goes, hey, you're trying to destroy us. He goes, not me. <laughs> We're just looking for one guy. She goes, suppose we kill him and lob his head out there. He goes, dandy. Love it. Shall we do lunch sometime? 
I mean, seriously, all of this battering and siege and all is kind of brought down to a nice little chat. Probably over a cup of Earl Grey. Who knows? Imagine avoiding starvation and warfare and death, all because one person understands the situation and gets to the bottom of it. But that's what she did. So the people that understand what's going on and see what's coming do something about it. And those without understanding don't get what's going on. And they get wiped out. So here's a principle. you got to be wise, look ahead to see what's coming, and do something about it right now. Now, one thing I know that's coming right now is Jesus. That is the one thing assured in life. That's why I read Psalm 2 there. Because, you know, all the nations of the world are saying, absolutely not. No way. We're going to break all of his cords, and that means all of his laws, and throw them away from us. And God says, over my dead body, that's going to happen. I am going to put my king on my holy hill of Zion. That is going to happen. So, not only did Jesus rise from the dead, but he's also going to return and rule the nations. Not like David, where if he leaves, maybe he comes back and maybe he doesn't. And then the ten concubines kind of go, Whoa, he's back. Awkward. Nothing can prevent Jesus from returning. So that means wisdom says, look ahead. Are you prepared for Jesus' return? Now, if you haven't received Jesus, you are not prepared. And so you need to receive Jesus. And I trust that everybody has here, but you know, who knows? I mean, I can't tell. Everybody is nice here. But nice does not equal Christianity. Does not equal being born again. So, you know, I, I talked to my friend in Moldova. And he told me that the pastor and his son actually jumped on a plane to Israel because that's where his other son lives. And they had to go on short notice without even getting a visa to get into Israel because this man's son's partner 
had a funny thing in her stomach and it was not feeling good and she went to the hospital and they said, you're okay, don't worry about it. She went home and it didn't go away and she went back to the hospital and she died. Just like that. They weren't married. They got a little boy. Now this guy's all by himself. You don't know how long you have. And this one isn't out of Reader's Digest. This actually happened. And stuff happens like this all the time. You do not know how long you have. So you have to see that coming and do something now. Now, if you've received Jesus, are you doing the crucial thing that he wants you to do now? Now, this is hard for me as a pastor because I don't know what he wants you to do. I got my ideas. But this is something only you and he can deal with. You know, he has prepared works for us in advance that we should walk in them. We have a number of divine appointments. And if we're listening to him and saying, Lord, please guide me, he will get us to where we need to be to do the things we need to do. But we don't know what they are in advance. He doesn't send us the list for today. So this is always a weird spot, isn't it? What is the will of God for your life? So, there is something you can do about this. It's in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. He says, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. That's how it begins. And he's saying, you give everything you have. The body contains the heart, the mind. And this is your reasonable, rational, spiritual service of worship. That it's not just for a couple of hours on a Sunday, but it's 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you present your body as a living sacrifice and say, okay, here I am. I do not withhold areas of my life saying, well, can't touch that. That's mine. You say, it's all up to you. Anything you want, you can have it. And then he says, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. In other words, you will be able to recognize it when it comes along. And this is pretty cool. 
without your mind being transformed and renewed, you will not recognize the will of God. It will come up and you will go, that looks like suffering. That looks inconvenient. And you'll let that go because you know, I haven't got time for that. But something comes up that is not the will of God and you go, wow. That's exactly it, man. It's in stereo. That's my favorite stuff right there. And here's something really terrifying. If we give ourselves to insignificant, trivial things, we will become trivial and insignificant. We will not affect anybody, much less ourselves. But if we give ourselves to significant things, we will become significant. And we will affect others around us and ourselves. And this is how we come to know what is the will of God for us. So we take off the brakes and say, God, anything you want, you can have it. And then we pursue our minds being renewed and transformed. Because without the understanding, we won't even recognize the will of God. Jesus teaches his disciples that he's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to be rejected. He's going to be mocked, spit upon, crucified, and he will rise from the dead three days later. And Peter says, far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And that's kind of how we look at things with an unrenewed mind. We go, wow, far be it from you, Lord. This is never going to happen to me. How important it is to have our minds renewed. So, knowing what's coming in the future, you want to see it be wise, and do something about it right now. That's wisdom. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you teach us and you warn us because we need it. Because I have a fatal tendency in myself towards insignificant things which only aids and abets the enemy. But your word says, when I became a man, I put aside childish things. And we want to 
we want to enter into what it is to be mature and to not mess around with trivial, insignificant things, but what is what's most important. And you know that. For each one of us, you know what that is. And so we pray, Lord, here I am. You bought me with the blood of Jesus. And I'm yours. And I'm so thankful for that. And now, please renew my mind. Please transform the way I think according to your word. We pray about what is your will for each one of us. And even without knowing what it is, right now this second we say, Lord, please do that. Please do all your good will in my life. Make me a person after your own heart to do what you want, what is part of your eternal purpose. Because that's my eternal purpose now. Help me to understand your will and to grasp it when it comes. You know, we need your help to do this. We can't do it without you. So fill us with your Holy Spirit. Help us to see what's coming and to be wise and do something about it. What is that thing you want us to do, Lord? That's what I'm interested in. You show that to each one of us We commit ourselves to and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.